This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, I'm Ian Parkinson. Welcome to the Ruler Podcast. In this edition, we'll be making some suggestions about what cyclists and racing fans might ideally want to wake up to on Christmas morning. If my family are listening, a Look 596 track bike in the Mondrian colour scheme would be nice, but socks and water bottles are always welcome. And books are good. The book that's probably attracted the most attention recently, and not all of it positive, is Icons by Bradley Wiggins. Full disclosure, I bought my own copy of this, and I think it's actually a really interesting original and personal take on pro cycling. It hasn't gone unnoticed that among the 21 icons selected is Lance Armstrong, although he's far from the only one in the book with a colourful doping history. At the Ruler Classic event, Sir Bradley explained in his usual individual style why Armstrong still made the cut. I'm an inner-city London boy, 13 years of age, growing up in London, detach myself from the group, have the confidence enough to detach myself from the group of boys that I was with, who at 13 stopped kicking a ball around, start looking in car windows. This is in a day you could nick car stereos and stuff, you used to pull them out in a big square with a handle. When it got to that stage and starting to smoke and your peer pressure and all that, I thought, actually, you know what, this isn't for me. I knew the difference between right and wrong. I had a good family behind me and I was, I was incredibly ambitious. And uh, it makes me quite emotional when I think about it, you know, because I just think where kids, we, where we're from, never amounted to anything. There was no... And so when I'm 13, there's three people in particular that I watch win a race that year. Eurosport has just come onto our screens. Cycling Weekly comes out once a week on a Thursday. Cycling Week is the only thing you could go up on a Thursday. I used to nip out in lunch break of school and get it and then read the results from the previous weekend. And uh, I watched Johan Museo win the Tour of Flanders. Didn't know who he was, didn't know what the jersey was that he represented. Just watched it and I was like, you know, my mum explained to me that this, this was like scoring an FA Cup winning goal if you were from Wembley or whatever. I watched Chris Lillywhite win the milk race. And to me, at 13, not knowing what cycling was, the milk race was the biggest thing in the world. And then I watched this 21-year-old American winning the world championships mm. in Oslo. He was Lance Armstrong. I can't change the fact that Lance Armstrong won that, you know? Is it best to not write about Lance in here? Look, at the end of the day, there's plenty of people that come out and become made a, made a, made a career of themselves out of becoming victim of their own choices. He didn't choose to do that, you know? He's a... Tough character, I know him quite well. I still speak to him. I'm sorry about that. At some point, you've got to get on with your life. 
and you've got to move on because we've seen what's happened to Jan Ulrich. And for some people, I don't know what's ever going to happen. You know, it, it's, it, we're going to find him in a hotel room like Manco Pantani. I mean, I don't know. I don't think that's winning the war. Um, he's not the perfect role model. He's not behaved in the perfect way since. But you know, someone asked me last week on radio, has he apologised to you? I'm not self-righteous enough that I, he owes me an apology. And Icons by Sir Bradley Wiggins is available on the Ruler website, along with a whole range of other carefully selected products which would brighten up any cycling Christmas, including our next subject, the Roadbook, a landmark in cycling publishing which contains details of pretty much every race of any real standing anywhere in the world in the last 12 months. Although Ned Bolting's name appears on the cover, he'd be the first to acknowledge the effort put into it by bike racing statistician Killian Kelly. The idea, I guess, uh, came from a combination of, of Ned Bolting and, and uh, Jonathan Marks, who, who uh, wanted to kind of craft the wisdom of cycling um, and was kind of amazed to find out that there wasn't really one in existence. There have been a couple of efforts in uh, Dutch and Italian, but um, not really with the same combination of style and substance that hopefully this is. So, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be a definitive record of the cycling year 2018 containing all the results that you would expect to find for men and women, uh, not just the World Tour, but right down to the kind of the, the point one level races and uh, it's got stats and infographics and it's got um, several editorial pieces that Ned commissioned from uh, various people including Marion Voss and Pippa York and uh, Tom Southam uh, to name a few and uh, hopefully it does the job, hopefully it, it piques a bit of interest, it's something to leave on the coffee table to, to leaf through and, and remind yourself of, of what happened and uh, I think it looks like it's got that kind of definitive feel. I only picked it up for the first time myself this morning. But well, looks, I've, I've, uh, yeah, I've got a copy in my hands now, and it literally arrived this morning, didn't it? Yeah. It's a huge thing. Yeah. It's a little bit bigger than I was expecting as well. You know, I've, I've had the PDF proofs on my computer, but you don't, absolutely don't get a sense of how big it's going to be when it's printed out like this. But uh, 900 pages or something, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, you could Close do some serious damage pages. with it. <laughs> yeah. And it is extraordinary that no one's thought of doing this before I, I guess it is like I, I know um, a kind of a natural reaction might be to say well it's all on the internet anyway isn't it and it is um, but I, I think maybe it's maybe just saddos like me that browse the internet in that way and surf around looking through results and wasting their lunch times doing that and uh, perhaps this might appeal to a, a, a wider audience of people who will just pick it up off their coffee table and, and be reminded of what went on rather than um, sitting at a laptop whiling away hours and work doing the same. There is something about seeing it actually in paper with a big red uh, binding on it, isn't there? That's, that, that is different to just Googling what was the result of the Guangxi tour or whatever. Yeah, and, and um, you know, there's that, that, uh, that browsability that you just don't get on the internet where you do... if. For instance, if you were looking up something specific, like a, a race result from the Tour of Guangxi, okay, you find it, but then you flick to the next page and you'll never know what you find on the next page. And, and then maybe you do end up Googling something, and that's fine. I mean, everybody's going to have a phone in their pocket while, they, while they're looking at this, and if you end up going down a rabbit hole on the internet, then great. But uh, hopefully this is a starting point for a lot of that. 
And it's not just the overall results, is it? Because I'm flicking here through the Giro d'Italia and it's every single stage. It's every stage. Every result of every yeah, single stage and got details and breakaways. and Weather, breakaways, intermediate sprint points, the, the whole shebang. A lot of the stuff actually um, is quite difficult to find online. Um, a lot of it wasn't available, ungoogleable, and I did have to do a little bit of contacting race organizers and and making a bit of an effort to gather the data together so yeah it's uh it's not it's not all online you're impressed seeing it in real life today. yeah i'm actually um i find myself in a bit of a uh, a strange uh, mental state where i i really love it i love l- looking at it but the uh, idea of opening it and and finding a mistake is really uh a deterrent for me so far so I've been reluctant to leave through it but I'll, I'll get there there must be one in there somewhere uh, there has to be <laughs> I've no doubt I've no doubt I, I've spent years on Twitter pointing out other people's mistakes to them and uh, I'm fully expecting others to do the same to me I deserve it <laughs> presumably if it's a success if it sells well mm. there'll be a 2019 and so on and so on this will be the the document of record for Ho- cycling hopefully yeah it'll be the start of something and yeah this time next year we'll be we'll be launching it again and uh I'm not sure my wife would be too pleased with me putting in the same amount of effort again next year. But, uh, yeah, hopefully the start of something and, and we will be um, celebrating again next year. Yeah. And one last question. You've got a little badge on your lapel, which yeah. is a little sort of cycling figure. Yes. And he actually appears throughout the book, doesn't he? What's the idea of him? He's just a little, uh, yeah, a figure that... <laughs> props up his name is chap and uh i'm not sure what he's for yet we'll, we'll figure it out but I, i've no doubt he'll, he'll crop up again somewhere killian kelly letting other people buy your cycling kit can be fraught with danger unless you're very clear with your instructions things can go very wrong very quickly one of the safest routes might be to direct them towards british bike institution prendas cyclismo and their range of quirky but understated jerseys inspired by great forgotten road races they were designed by Fergus Nyland of Santini and they're the brainchild of Prendice's Andy Story. Prendice is all about trying to do something different and um, you know we, we have obviously there's the retro jersey range that is really popular but not everybody wants to wear say a retro jersey but you know is interested in the history of the sport and um, we, we have a huge archive of like books, magazines at, at Prendice and yeah there's there's so much material that we have that's actually not available online so we're just sort of trying to create some products that sort of celebrate the history of the sport really um, and what was it about these races in particular we started off with quite a big list to be honest of, of races that weren't in existence anymore we tried to tried to sort of spread them around in terms of geography where they were held uh we also tried to obviously ones that had an interesting backstory uh, some forgotten races are obviously forgotten for a, for a very good reason. So, uh, so we tried to pick the ones that had an interesting backstory, which would then give Fergus the opportunity to create something visually, you know, that, that was appealing. So basically, you came up with the idea. Then uh, Fergus from Santini actually did the uh, d- design. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's start with the uh, first uh, forgotten race, and it, and it probably is uh, the one that uh, that fewest people remember, I guess, and that's the uh, Trofeo Baracki, uh, which was like uh, it was a time trial, wasn't it? That's right. Exactly right. Two up time trial, and uh, really a fantastic format for a race. Uh, incredible for lots of different reasons. You know, where you have guys that effectively are uh, in one point racing uh, with each other, and then kind of previously, and then have to have to go head to head. And try and basically try and break each other. Uh, fantastic format and kind of genuinely uh, interesting race. And you know, kind of when it stopped was a real shame. But 
that's the way things go. Because it went for about 50 years, didn't it? It was, but, but uh, stopped yeah. in 1991. 91, exactly right, yeah. I'm where, I guess, we are based, where Santini is based, kind of a lot of it's that part of the world too. Uh, like Andy said, kind of a lot of it, you feed into that, the history of the race, but also kind of also there's the, you kind of draw on the, the romance to try and create something then that is visually kind of, you know, pleasing as well. So kind of trofeo baraki had everything, yeah, absolutely. I'm not a designer, but um, to me, it's, it, it's a lovely jersey. It's blue and white stripes. Sure, yeah. exactly right, yeah. And talk us through the idea behind it. So, so like I say, kind of really that's linked to the original branding that, you know, would have been used towards the end of the race. Initially, I mean, going back through the years, branding really didn't exist. It was just the Trofeo Baraki and that was it. But going towards the last number of years in the 80s, there was some really cracking... Uh, design work done and that's really where it's drawn from so the blue and white's reference specifically to kind of uh, what the guys would have used to kind of uh, push and market the race at the time and that's where the little cyclist comes from as well and kind of uh, yeah that's kind of where it was based and the Omloop van Vlaanderen um, it's on sort of safer territory there because we're on sort of black yellow and, and red uh, more familiar territory there the Omloop van Vlaanderen became Het Volk is that right and then Het Noisblad my own sort of personal wants for the collection if you like was when when I first got into road cycling there was like no TV coverage at all um, there was the Tour de France on you know Channel 4 for well, it was half an hour, but it wasn't really half an hour by the time you took all the ads out. Uh, so the only way I got to see some of the like the early season classics is is Roger, who who was a guy that run the local lightweight road bike shop. He he had a, a contact in Belgium that would actually send like VHS video tapes, you know, once a month, and we and we'd all sort of sit down and watch like all these sort of semi classics, you know, with obviously Flemish commentary, and so it was the sort of trying to sort of recreate some of the sort of romance of that all really because it was that was my sort of formative years in, in sort of becoming a road cyclist really so and it was that was the only way of watching these races you know was VHS tapes <laughs> sent via the English channel you know so well it was normally it was normally well past you know we got to see them when the Giro was on normally <laughs> and uh, from a design point of view you uh, Fergus you went with a sort of cobbled theme so sure I guess well any kind of race in that part of the world kind of uh, from a design perspective is cliche you can just kind of create the cobble theme but I think the thing I would point to uh, in that design would be was was known as the winter class that's what it was known as uh, in some in some way so the actual motif on the back of the pocket takes the the line of Flanders and basically creates a kind of a snowflake effect out of out of that so kind of that's a little bit different it hasn't really been seen before so yeah that's uh, that was kind of cool to design that yeah okay now on to one of my favorite forgotten races as a fat derny pacer myself Bordeaux Paris which is it's a great shame that that doesn't run anymore isn't it yeah, I suppose it's probably just the distance that, you know, that, that was against it, really. I mean, I think the actual race format could probably work still, you know, dirty-paced cyclists, you know, racing against each other. Because it used to start at, like, 2 o'clock in the morning in Bordeaux. Yeah, and then it. pretty much, yeah, exactly, yeah. Now, it's certainly kind of, it's almost a race from a really different era, and I guess now in the days where, uh, I don't know, Welter trying to shorten stages, you know, certainly kind of a race to last as long as that wouldn't go down too well, but... Nevertheless, an incredible feat to all the people that took part and especially those who won it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And the first winner of um, Bordeaux-Parry was a, was a Brit, wasn't he? It was um, uh, George Mills, I think. 
Right, yeah, I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't know uh, that, to be honest. I hadn't gone that far back. <laughs> the first winner was a Brit, and then, of course, Arthur Linton uh, won it, and, most famously, I guess, Tom Simpson, yeah, sure. who features, on yeah, the, yeah. Uh, features in the design. So that's pretty much, yeah, exactly where kind of we tried to, we tried to kind of get a few different cues in there because Tom would have been, you know, kind of incredible achievement by him, you know? And so certainly, I guess, again, the, the motif on the back with the Derny Rider with his little bowler hat, that's kind of, you know, uh, kind of a nod towards Tom Simpson there, right there. Uh, and uh, yeah, again, I just, I think from a design point of view, black and white, very classy checkerboard effect. It's actually taken from the BP logo. That's kind of where it comes from, which is Bordeaux Paris, kind of on play on all that kind of stuff. So. That's what creates uh, ultimately the design. The last one at the moment is the Peace Race, which again, which was a huge race for British fans in particular, because one of the few chances our riders got to um, uh, to to, uh, to race abroad, wasn't it? Yeah, um, I mean, there's a, a guy local to to myself, uh, Glenn Longland. He, you know, won the 12-hour national championship, and he sort of, you know, he was when I was a kid racing as a junior. You know, he was always tearing our legs off. You know, and and, and when you hear about some of the stories of, of that race and the, the, how hard it was, and you've, you then got a pretty good un- idea why he was able to go that fast, you know. Uh, I guess you know it was just it was just another another world and another level, really. And it was in those days behind the Iron Curtain in the Soviet bloc. So it was what is uh, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, and Poland mainly was the was the racing, yeah. Um, and, um, of course, a lot of East European riders came over here as well, didn't they, during the milk race? I remember as yeah. a kid watching some East European riders over here doing the, doing the milk race. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean the, the milk race used to, you know... I think the, the milk race always used to sort of seem to finish in a town really close to us when we were kids, you know. And uh, sort of seeing it, the riders sort of come thundering down into Bournemouth, you know, by the seafront was something I'll never forget, you know. It, it, and... and you obviously had the, the you know the, the the red you know the really a rich red color jersey for all the the Russian riders you know which was sort of a stark contrast to say maybe like the the Z Peugeot pro teams or the the 711s that were around at the time. Um, another one was like the Percy Bilton team you know I mean they, they, yeah there's just such a contrast you know and it was so obvious that which you you anybody could pick out like which riders were pro and which riders were amateur you know it was just just because of the way they looked on the bike yeah. and of course the peace race ended after the wall came down after the uh, end of uh, communism in in eastern europe um fergus what what did you decide to go with on the uh, design so there i think certainly the peace race in terms of uh, if you look at the entire gamut of design in the world of cycling kind of brings in so many different aspects so one would be kind of looking just at the beautiful uh, poster designs that would have been created through the entirety of that event that would have been then linked to you know kind of real you know core graphic design so kind of going right back to those kind of soviet era constructivist uh you know graphic artists so kind of effectively that's what you look at and you kind of try then to try and pull a design apart using all these different various pieces and, and like i say luckily kind of there's so much to draw on there so kind of uh yeah the design's kind of based in that soviet era graphic design kind of uh which was wonderful to do well some lovely jerseys there what's next <laughs> that's a good question yeah absolutely i have a few ideas you know but there's a few different races that i'd like to do um i mean we we don't have like a spanish forgotten race uh, you know that's that's sort of like an obvious um that's an obvious sort of admission if you like i mean the milk race i think would make a nice yeah would make a nice one and i would like to have a spanish 
race of some nature. Just some more endless looking through old magazines and books in the archive and trying to come up with a few ideas. If you're Christmas shopping in London at any point soon, stop off for a coffee or a drink at the Look Mum No Hands branch in Old Street and you can also check out an intriguing photo exhibition which shines a light into the normally closed and secretive world of Japanese Kirin. The pictures were taken at the Kyoto track by Laura Fletcher. Well, it's a bit of a funny story. I went over with my partner Nathan Hass, who's a professional cyclist, to Japan last year uh, to do the Japan Cup criterium. He was asked to go. He's a past winner of the road race, and he was put on a team of uh, Kieran racers. It's probably the only time Nathan's been the smallest guy on a team by far, and the only time that he's had by far the worst sprint amongst a team. <laughs> After that, we sort of, we were out, out with the guys, and we said, oh, you know, we're really interested in Kieran and what it's all about. And one of the guys that was there was the actual head of the Kieran Association. And he said, where are you going after this? And we said, oh, we go to Kyoto. Are there any races on there? And they said, they looked at the schedule and they're like, yep, you can come on this day, which apparently was a little bit of an embarrassment to them because as many of their tracks are beautiful and flashy and new, Kyoto is sort of the oldest one, one of the sort of least attended and probably not one that they wanted to show off. But to us, that was actually the best thing that we could see. And generally, uh, no, you know, you're not allowed to take pictures. The kind of security around the whole thing, because of the gambling, uh, the security around Kirin is incredibly tight, isn't it? Yes, the riders are sequestered for you know over 24 hours before they're racing. They're not allowed to have phones back there, essentially because they could be influenced to throw the races yeah, so they were actually held. They're not allowed to communicate with the outside world. We were brought back there. I was allowed to have my camera, but we were actually told that we could not take our phones out. So You've sort of mentioned uh, that Kyoto is one of the older tracks, but give us a, a flavor of what a Kirin meeting is like. It's pretty unique. Uh, sort of like any you know betting site or track, like a horse track, there's an area when you go in where you can place your bets and the, the tellers or what you might call them that help with the betting, the stands and then the backstage area and the staging area, the warm-up area. The whole thing is quite fastest, which is what's so surprising. The race is only two laps. So you do get these big periods of time sort of between races. So you'll have a full day of races, but maybe two or three an hour that only take, you know, two minutes each. And there were not a lot of people there. Generally, Japan is betting online on Kieran. It's still hugely popular on television and on and on online platforms, but the actual attendance has gone down dramatically. So, from some of your pictures, I get the impression that uh, it's it's quite an older audience that are kind of going to the actual tracks and watching the races in person. Yes, it's probably a generation that's there that mainly is not very comfortable using online betting platforms, but also possibly just the tradition of it. It's pastime for a certain generation that's still holding on to that. What about the riders themselves? Because um, although it's you know primarily a betting industry, I guess, they're still very well-regarded athletes, aren't they? Absolutely well-regarded athletes. Some of the top guys, I mean, are also in the track program to be looking towards Tokyo 2020 in the Olympics. The age range is definitely a bit broader than, you know, in our professional cycling bubble of road cycling. Like some of the riders are up, you know, probably in their 40s and 50s, which is which is rare. But yes, it's very lucrative for them. It's a great job. They're highly regarded in, in the sport. Did you get the chance to talk to any of them or? We, we got a chance to talk to a few of them. I'll be honest, communication is uh, difficult to say the least. Uh, we were provided with a translator to help us. But generally before the race, they were all very, very focused. You know, you get the same 
answers from somebody about to start a stage of the Tour de France as we got from these guys. There's a huge fascination with uh, Kieran in, in, in this country and in, in Europe, partly because of all the ritual that's, that surrounds it. But what's it actually like watching a Kieran race as a spectator? It goes by really fast. But let me tell you, we did we did manage to place some bets, and it's it's trickier than you think. You can't just bet on the winner. You actually have to bet on first and second place. And we couldn't read the you know guidelines and the odds and everything to, of what was happening because so we kind of just went for it. Uh, we placed three bets and we got one of them right, so we broke even. Um, but it's quite exciting, especially like I know this sounds bad and like I'm promoting gambling, but it can be quite exciting when you sort of do bet on that and you're just really rooting for somebody to win and just so you can earn your yen back <laughs> you've blown on the first two rounds uh, so as a photographer um what were you what were you particularly looking for what particularly struck you when you walk, walked into the track mainly i just saw the shapes and the colors of everything it's it's incredibly geometric in every sense of the word from the structures of the buildings to the colors that the riders are wearing it's just it's it's graphic it is everything that you could imagine. And then the contrast of that was sort of the humans and the personalities that were there. These, you know, like we said, a very older crowd, a little bit, I'll be honest, a little bit sad, a little bit depressing. And um, so just sort of looking at the stark contrast between these two things. And then this world where to me, Japan is cutting edge technology on everything. It's new, it's lights, it's Shibuya, it's Shinjuku, it's bright and colorful. And then they have this world that is the complete opposite of that. And that's always, I think, is what has been so fascinating about Japan is the contrast between the ritual and the modern. You have some of the pictures uh, with you here. Can you talk us through just a couple of them? So we'll start with the one that I probably get the most comments on, which is what the hell are those shoes? Uh, one of the images is of a very traditional Japanese platform sandal that the riders use while warming up. And this was one of those really wonderful things that we got to access backstage that I'm not sure if anybody else has actually really ever seen before. And apparently the shoe is used to achieve strength and balance through the foot. It is, like we said before, a sort of amazing blend of, you know, tradition and, and new technology there. And this, I think, really shows the example. And it's just, it's just amazing to see, I think, especially from when we're constantly in a world where like, what's the latest carbon fiber bike, you know, and 12 speed and disc brakes. And there's this whole way of doing things that is just these are wooden block shoes like we can make these at home it doesn't you know there's nothing there's no carbon in sight here <laughs> and and the leg that's sort of attached to those shoes has got that um what we're quite familiar with now that the, the sort of uh red panel with the stars on which and the different colors all signify something in terms of the the riders don't they the riders always wear the different you know one color of the rainbow essentially jersey each but the shorts and the and the edges on things signify the level of racing that they are in and the rainbow one is a higher one whereas the lower levels you'll see red banding on their shorts solid red banding or solid green banding and that signifies which category they're in when you look at the images of the crowd and the people that are there it's i mean i think most of the images sort of have have a similar sentiment to them and you can see that it's generally you know it was 99 percent male and 90% over the age of 60. What was amazing, I think, about all of them was the actual attention and focus. And I think that I've managed to capture that in the images, that there's a real there's a real passion for it, which 
goes beyond just making money. And you can see Laura's pictures at Look Mum No Hands until the end of January. And there are also some on the Ruler website and her own blog, The Peloton Brief. Time now to get some expert advice from Rouleur's desire editor, Stuart Clapp. Stuart, what do you want in your stocking this Christmas? What would I like in my stocking? Well, I don't know if you could get a new bike under there, but I'm, I'm still looking for that. You remember we were talking about the new bikes? Yeah. Well, I still, I still want that. Um, in fact, there's a long story about uh, me and bikes for Christmas that I don't want to go into it because it will embarrass my parents. But should I go into it? Yeah, go on. I'll keep it really short, right? One year when I was little, I think this is it. Like you know, like Matt talked about on the show about how why you're inevitably, you know, why why you're here. Like you see it, you have a moment in in you know with your cycling path. Well, what what a cycle path? What what happened was with me was I had got a bike for Christmas, and I remember I got a chips outfit as well. I've just I've just aged myself now, and I got a bike for Christmas, right? And it was a green bike. I even got photos of it. At Christmas, we were the chips outfit on and this bike under the Christmas tree. But a few days after Christmas, my mum my and dad sold the bike and I remember the girl coming round and picking it up. What, they sold your Christmas present? It's quite sad, actually. How sad is that? Yeah, it did, because apparently it, was a, it didn't fit me and it was a girl's bike. I didn't care, though. This has this brought a real downer, isn't it? On, on, sure. He's really sad, but I think that's why I've always been striving for this new bike. So maybe when I give, when I, I'll let my mum and dad know that you know this this show's gone out, and maybe they can, uh, you know, un, un, undo the damage and finally get me that bike and and not and not sell it. Well, moving on from that very sad story. Right. <laughs> It's true, though. What would your recommendations be? Right, re- recommendations. Right, you just had Brad on with the Icons book, right? That, I'm reading it at the moment. It's really good, and I'm not saying that just because he was on earlier. It is a really, really good book. And there's a, I'll tell you what, that and, you know, the road book, which, uh, that, like, like the wisdom of cycling, that's proper cool as well. Yeah, you don't always have high expectations of books that are written by or with athletes, but actually Icons is, is really, really good. It shows Brad, doesn't it? Like, do footballers and rugby players, are they so obsessed with the history of, of the sport? But Brad totally gets it. He's, he's, he's a proper fan of cycling. You know, he's, uh, you know he talks about how, how nerdy he was years ago, you know, with uh, the other riders in Cofidis or whatever would say to him, oh, uh, what what shoes was I wearing in that race? And and he'll remember, you know. It's like they, that's that's pretty special. That is pretty special. And it's yeah, beautiful book. Beautiful. So much work must have gone into that. There's a few things I've had a look on our website actually. Yeah, I mentioned the Ruler web shop uh, earlier on. There are some uh, rather nice things on there, aren't there? Yeah, there are. Yeah, as well as the books. There's also I'll tell you what I'd really like because Christmas is one of those times where you, you you can get stuff that you wouldn't necessarily buy for yourself, right? Well, in my theory, is like, you know, like I, I wouldn't necessarily buy myself a bike and then sell it to a girl, mum and dad. But but there's I'd, I'd like I'd like one of the corkscrews, you know, the Campac corkscrews. I read somewhere, I'm sure, that Tullio Campagnolo, um, founder of Campagnolo, actually invented that sort of corkscrew, you know, because he invented the quick release and all kinds of other things. But I'm not sure whether that's true or not. It would be interesting if someone knows uh, if that's a fact or whether I'm just making it up. 
um, then uh, do write in and let us know, email in and let us know. But I'm pretty sure that that sort of corkscrew with the two levers was actually invented by Campagnolo. That's a really, really good fact. And that really is for the cyclist that has everything. And you can imagine, can't you? Like, hey, just going to pull this out of the dinner table. But actually, I've, I've got I've, my, my main tip, right? And this comes from experience because I, I went out cycling yesterday and uh, I, had a, I had a night out. I've still got big night voice, haven't I? I heard that expression before we did the show, um, Chat Stevens, David Miller, when he walked in, he went out the night before because it was Fran's birthday. And, he, and Mac referred to his voice as big night voice. And I thought, oh, that's really funny because you have got like big night. I've still got big night voice from the other night. And uh, I went riding thinking, yeah, I'll get up and go for a ride after a curry and a few beers. And, uh, and all I did was just ride around with acid indigestion. So my main tip for any cyclist this year, Christmas present, little stocking filler, packet of Rennie. That will keep them going over Christmas. Or socks. The Paul Smith ones are really good on our website. I don't usually wear fancy socks, though, when I'm riding. And now I'm going to get into a debate of if you've got socks on, do you put them over your tights or under your tights? That'll kick off now. The answer is obvious. It's it's under. Under, yeah. You wouldn't you won't you wouldn't go to work with socks over the bottom of your your, your suit trousers, would you? You'd look you'd look silly. But yeah, Re- Rennie, Rennie is definitely my tip, though. Crucial and useful advice there from Stuart Clapp, as always. That's it from this podcast. Don't forget, you can still catch Stuart in vision with uh, Matt Stevens, David Miller and Pippa York on Ruler's Chat Stevens video series. Uh, subscribe on the Ruler YouTube page. There'll be another podcast along in a couple of weeks. Catch you then. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 